Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. Uh, Luke, is today's lesson still don't go to law school? Yes, don't go to law school. It's terrible. And right, you I just don't, to you get don't that learn away. anything there. All you learn is that there are, there are no answers. There are no answers. Well, I just want to get that out of the way from the start. We are excited to be back for another episode of Peach Pod. On this week's show, we're going to take a look back at Crossover Day. This was last week where the legislature had their uh, annual late night session where bills that are uh, being considered by the legislature have to make it out of the chamber that they start in and over to the other side to still be considered uh, before the end of the session. Although, actually, they don't really have to, but I don't know. I guess that's a formal rule that... uh, Um, has some loopholes in it. Um, But we're going to talk through some of the good bills that uh, came out of the House and the Senate and still have a chance to make it to the end of this session, some of the bad bills that came out, and some of the frankly really ugly bills uh, that the legislature is considering. And then for our second topic this week, we're going to check in on qualifying for the midterms. Uh, The midterms are kind of officially finally here with the uh, first primaries taking place over in Texas and then uh, in here in Georgia qualifying took place this week. So we know um, who is actually running. I don't think there's a lot of surprises on who is actually throwing their hat in, uh, but there were a couple of surprises on who is taking their hat out. Uh, so we're going to talk about qualifying and preview the midterms uh, based on now that we know who's actually running. But let's start with some of the bills from crossover day and, and some of the stuff that is still Uh, on deck for the legislature this session. Um, And let's start with some of the good bills that the legislature is considering. Um, So we have really uh, maybe the first big move on transit in the Atlanta area in quite some time. Uh, This was contained in House Bill 930. It's the Georgia Regional Transportation Authority bill. Um, But what this bill does is, is it creates the Atlanta Transit Link or the ATL Um, It's not actually a new agency. They're rebranding Greta, um, an existing transportation agency in Georgia, and they're giving it a new board, some additional authority. And this is going to become the central planning agency for transit in 13 counties in the metro Atlanta region. So the ATL is going to cover the five counties currently covered under the MARTA law. That's Clayton, Cobb, DeKalb, Fulton, and Gwinnett. Uh, it turns out Cobb does have at least just a little bit of Marta. We had to pause and look that up. Um, but it also includes Cherokee, Coweta, Douglas, Fayette, Forsyth, Henry, Paulding, and Rockdale counties. Uh, so this creates a much bigger transit footprint for uh, the Atlanta metro area, something that's much more reflective of the growth of that area and who actually uh, commutes into the city or around the whole region to get to work. Um but that's sort of basically the starting point for this bill is that it it includes some new state funding, uh, but basically what the bill does is creates this new governance structure um, that allows these 13 counties to participate if they want to, but allows them to not participate if they don't want to, and is kind of seen as a first step in uh, creating a new uh, transit future for the Atlanta region. Um, Luke, what do you think about this uh, bill that creates this new governing entity? Are we are we taking a good enough first step or, or should we be moving a little quicker? 
I think this is a really good first step. Uh, transit has been a really hard issue for the Atlanta area, and there's been a lot of real need there. And so just the fact that the government is willing to put something together and that this has been a pretty positive effort and that there hasn't been a whole lot of pushback and kind of everyone's unified. I think on that front, it's good because uh, the need is very, very significant for there to be more cooperation uh, in the Atlanta metro area on bringing more transit options there. So the fact that this is something that isn't, you know, just Democrats screaming from you know, the back, the back of the room that this is something we need to do and something that has buy-in from the Republicans, I think is really, really important because it will create a firm foundation uh, for potential future gains to it. So it, there's definitely a lot more we could be doing uh, as I am, I have to mention, you know, Clark County's not here. We don't have the brain training from this. And so that makes me sad, but it's like, you know, it's, it's a good start. And it's the fact that the state's actually willing to invest in this and uh, want to, you know, be part of the planning of the future of all of, you know, transit in Georgia. It's, it's pretty important. And the, you know, really the only bad thing that I can see uh, coming out of this is that uh, renaming and rebranding everything to the ATL it's not a verb. You can't, you can't, you know, catch a, you know, Mara and, or, you know, be, you know, going Mara over there. You can't like ATL over there. It's going to be, going to be a little harder. Well, uh, coming from a DC resident, if I tell people that I'm going to Metro over to where they are, they, uh, automatically expect that I'm going to be like 30 or 45 minutes late because our transit system up here in DC is not currently in very good shape. Um, which, doesn't uh, completely destroy the idea of transit itself. But if you want to learn a lot of things not to do with the ATL, uh, take a look at WMATA up here in Washington um, because we uh, things have not been going great up here lately. Um, Cobb County is a big sticking point in this uh, negotiation and in this new uh, governance structure that's created. Um, they actually, the AJC uh, kind of put out a confusing headline earlier this week when they talked about how Cobb County was removed from this transit bill. Um, that actually wasn't true. Cobb County is uh, kind of split on what to do with transit right now. And uh, Cobb is one of the counties that has grown a lot and really probably could have been the county um, in the Northwest region of Atlanta up 75 that really probably should have jumped in on transit first. Originally in this bill, Cobb County was actually split up to where there was a transit district that was created that could participate in this 13 county region. It would have been 12 counties plus a, sli- a slice of Cobb. Um, and Earl Earhart, uh, our buddy, was, our, our friend of the pod, uh, who is retiring. This will be one of his, uh, final acts of, um, interest in the legislature actually had the transit district removed from the bill. And now the discussion on transit in Cobb County is going to be a countywide affair instead of the sliver of the county that probably would have voted yes to raise their own taxes to fund some transit. Um, from what I read from the reporting, it looks like this might leave Cobb County as sort of saying, uh, we're going to hold off and see what other counties do before uh, the before they kind of dive in on what they would do for transit projects in their area. Um, I guess that's, that well, that's an important up- thing to mention too, though. Cause like all 
this isn't being forced on the counties. They have to all vote, have a vote to actually join this district and start funding it, right? Yeah, they'll have to have uh, local votes on um, TSPLAS, the local taxes that you can uh, elect to raise locally. You can elect to raise your sales taxes, and then you can designate what that funding will go to. Um, people who've been following transit for a long time would remember the 2012 TSPLAS vote that failed pretty spectacularly. Uh, all across the state, it was supposed to be the big infusion of money for transit and fixing a lot of our maintenance and road construction problems all in one big thing. And uh, by the end of that campaign, that whole thing was just a mess. And a lot of people felt like it was something they didn't want to participate in. And so yeah, this this gives more flexibility to the counties. They're basically welcomed into this new governance structure, but they're not forced to. And once they're welcomed in, they're not forced to really build out anything or be tied to what the other counties are doing. Uh, but the idea is that originally, or prior to this bill, you had, I think, like 13 transit agencies among different counties in the Atlanta area. And so some of what this would do would streamline um, just some of the logistical stuff and to ensure that the planning that transit planners are doing um, is coordinated across all these counties so that you don't have mismatched services um, across the region. The one other thing that stood out that was interesting about Cobb, though, was uh, Sharon Mason. She's the CEO of the Cobb Chamber. Um, she told a gathering of lawmakers and advocates and, and stakeholders in Cobb County as this was being kind of worked out, the final details of Cobb's participation in this bill, that 45% of businesses uh, that may have considered coming to Cobb County cross Cobb off of their list because of a lack of transit connectivity or any kind of plan for mass transit. Um, that's an insane number of businesses that looked at Cobb County, a place that just got the brave stadium, a place that is not uh, one of the outlying counties like Cherokee or further North. Um, it's pretty close to Atlanta. And they said, Nope, because you don't have transit. And so they're looking at other places. And, and I think that's what motivates Gwinnett to really try to push the ball to be involved in this. Luke, it does sound like economic development is going to be the thing that drives this transit conversation um, going forward. Yeah, I think that's a good thing and because that's something that it'll be easier for uh, both parties to get on board with. And at this point, we're so behind the eight ball. I'm happy that it's coming out in language that the Republicans can understand that we really need to be investing in transit, not only because of, you know, relieving congestion and being better for the environment and helping uh, people without cars get around and get to work. It also will, you know, prevent the Amazons of the world and bigger companies from coming because many, uh, you know, people uh, like ourselves who are, uh, you know, college graduates and want to work for, you know, tech companies or any, you know, any job really, you know, want to have options to get to work and not have to sit on, you know, an interstate for an hour to go like 10 miles. Yeah. And I think uh, just to kind of wrap up on this, I think Charlie Harper pointed out maybe the most important thing about this bill um, is the voluntary nature of it means that there are carrots for, counties to participate, one of which is the economic development question and the fact that uh, in places like Cobb, businesses aren't coming there because of 
the lack of transit. And then there is the opportunity for state funds. There's a little bit of state funding in this bill. And I think what is envisioned is if you get a buy-in from a lot of these 13 counties and a lot of them really do decide they want to create project lists and come up with ideas that are going to reduce congestion and make getting around easier, that there will be more state funding there in the future to do that. Um, and then the important thing to note is that there is no stick. Uh, there's two carrots and there's no sticks. And I think that uh, when people look back on the 2012 t um, that is, I think, the key for, for people into buying into this model uh, when they did not want to buy in in, in 2012. With that, though, let's talk about uh, House Bill 887. Uh, This is the Georgia Communication Services Tax Act. Uh, Broadly, this is a bill that adopts many of the recommendations that were made by the Rural Development Council in meetings over the last year. Um, And it adopts policies that are meant to enable internet service providers to uh, more easily provide service to rural areas in Georgia. This it mainly dealt with a lot of technical things like um, encouraging cities and municipalities in rural Georgia to adopt a model zoning law ordinance that would basically standardize the way every county considers new internet service provider projects. And it also uh, standardizes some of the fees that are involved and sort of streamlines the process. I looked at some of these meetings last year, and this was the big complaint raised by some of the big players like AT&T, but also some of the smaller players like Windstream that provide some internet service in rural Georgia, um, that dealing with all these local governments and the different ways of doing things and the fact that you know, in a in a little town in South Georgia that's never had internet service and doesn't have a lot of economic activity coming through, they don't have a lot of staff on hand to just know how to do the permitting process and understand what the impacts would be from these projects um, and do that in a quick manner. And so part of the goal of this bill is to just kind of have the state enable localities to standardize these things and make them easier for for companies to deal with. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing about this bill is it's arguably the biggest uh, piece of legislation that we got from the laundry list of ideas for the rural development study committee that we talked about so much going into this session and then ended up not really seeing all that much from, which was pretty disappointing. Um, so, I mean, on that front, I, I agree with you. I definitely put this in the good category and it's nice to see that there's attempts to invest in uh, this technology a bit more. You know, it probably doesn't go far enough, but it's at least a good start. And I'm just wondering where the rural development stuff goes, because uh, with our, you know, the first bill we talked about, it's, it's pretty focused on Atlanta. And this is one of the few bills that was a bit more focused on rural Georgia. And if we're going to get the state to where it needs to be, uh, Democrats, but also, I mean, the Republicans too need to think about ways that we can help out our rural brethren. Yeah. Charlie Harper has kind of tried to create this talking point and, and I don't really know if it's more for the public or more actually for legislators that the way to move on big problems in Georgia is to pair a problem that is important in rural Georgia and a problem that's important to suburban and Atlanta um, in, in urban Georgia, and to try to get over this complaint that people in rural Georgia get annoyed that their tax dollars are going to fund trains in Atlanta, 
or fund transit projects that they don't benefit from. Um, and to a large extent, I, I think most people in Atlanta or in the metro area would never think about not having access to internet as being a real problem. I mean, it's something that they've had access to for I don't, I mean, probably since it was invented pretty much, I mean, there's always been a market there for that and it's always been economical for, uh, AT&T and, and other service providers to cover those areas. Um, whereas it hasn't in rural Georgia. And so I don't, I mean, this could be the frame that we see these bills in going forward that, you know, rural Georgia gets a little bit and urban Georgia gets a little bit and these things kind of move in pairs. So that'll be something that's interesting to watch, um, to see, if that's how these problems get addressed. Um, let's just note on a few of the other good bills, and then we'll dive into some of the not good stuff that the legislature has been working on. Um, sexual assault has obviously been a big topic of discussion with the Me Too movement and uh, everything that's gone on related to that. And so there was discussion at the beginning of session about new policies related to sexual harassment um, at the Gold Dome, and one of the things that they did is they ensured that lobbyists would be covered under uh, sexual harassment policies, and so uh, that policy intends to try to capture a, a bigger group of people that are actually at the Capitol all the time participating in everything that goes on at the Capitol. And another bill that passed that's important is House Bill 834. This is an idea that I saw gain traction from Scott Holcomb, a Democrat, but I think that this was actually Mandy Ballinger's bill. She's a Republican. Uh, but basically what this bill does is it allows um, survivors of domestic abuse or sexual assault, um, if they are living with somebody who is an abuser, they can get out of their lease. Uh, they can break their lease without penalty. Um, and that will enable uh, people who are survivors of sexual assault to get out of bad situations. Um, so that's, that's a good little bill that got done. And so uh, props to both sides of the aisle for, for getting that done. And then uh, one final bill on um, the issue of guns. Uh, there hasn't been big gun legislation to move in Georgia, really, uh, in response to the Parkland shooting. Um, it didn't, it, the shooting just did not put guns on the agenda in Georgia the way uh, that it has in some other places. Although we'll see if uh, places like Florida or the U.S. Congress will act either. But a small thing that Georgia did was they uh, closed a loophole in current gun policy that would eventually allow people who are, um, have a mental health condition to eventually buy guns. Basically, the way that it works is that there's a registry that people get put on if they have a mental health condition that um, is reason for them not to have a gun. But Georgia is one of the few states that after five years, your plate, your that after five years, your name on that list is removed, regardless of any changes in condition or, or anything like that. And so what this does is it eliminates the five year period where that where that name is removed. And so people would be on that list until they petition a court to allow them to not be on that list any longer. Um, so a good small thing that the legislature did on that, but obviously there is room to run on that a little bit. And there's the, you know, more concerning things about what they have already allowed in this state. And so right before we started uh, recording, I uh, saw a police report that a semi-automatic pistol had been found on uh, UGA's campus at 2.40 at night, just left out in the middle of campus at a bus stop. So omnipresent. Yeah, I've walked around Athens at 2.30 in the morning before. I'm sure that's not a problem at all. 
All right, so let's get into some of the bad a little bit here. Um, we have a we have good news about a bad bill to start off. Uh, House Bill 482, this is the Georgia Educational Scholarship Act. Um, this is basically an education voucher bill that would allow uh, students in public schools to take their per-student allocation for how much money they get from the state to go to their public school, to basically take that in the form of a voucher and... Um, and take that to a private school. That was a bill that failed uh, by vote 60 to 102, uh, which is a pretty strong rebuke for a bill in a legislature that's dominated by Republicans that uh, tend to lean towards embracing school choice whenever they can. Um, Luke, I saw that uh, Democrats were pretty excited to see this go down. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about why that was? Well, I think what it is just, Exactly what you're saying is that this is a legislature, uh, you know, dominated by Republicans. And uh, when I was talking to some of my uh, Democratic representative friends uh, about what they felt crossover day was like, this was the bill that like came up every time, like every single time people were just like, and we killed the voucher bill. And I think what what was is just that, you know, it's been a problem in previous years that there would be bills that would be problematic and that there was an argument that could actually sway the other side. And the argument just was not being made as effectively as it needed to be. And, you know, this year it was different this year. We were able to make the argument and to sink a pretty bad bill. And so I think that is uh, part of the reason everyone's been so excited about it is just because of the fact that a lot of times, some policies like this just get done because it's something that Republicans generically think they are in favor of. And so the fact that we were able to go out there and make the argument, I I think is a a big, big deal. And it's something that, uh, you know, keeps me hopeful and keeps me enjoying watching the Georgia state assembly because they're, tends to be moments like this where a bill that is a bad idea won't make it through because of the arguments that the other side makes. Yeah, I actually I thought about a couple of things related to this. Um, There's been a lot of frustration among uh, pro school choice Republicans that the legislature has not done more on school choice. I think there really hasn't been significant school choice legislation to get through the process since the state charter school commission was created in 2012. Um, And so there is a hunger among conservatives uh, to embrace more school choice measures that drive funds out of public schools and into private schools or homeschooling or or whatever entity that uh, parents and students decide they want to send their education dollars to. Um, so there is a hunger among conservatives for for a bigger embrace of school choice. And you see that in some of the governor candidates. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of particularly of Hunter Hill and Michael Williams on this. Um, But you also saw this week uh, the end of a strike by teachers in West Virginia who were protesting low pay and increases in their uh, health insurance costs that were driven by um, basically uh, spending cuts in the West Virginia legislature. And you've seen teachers in West Virginia get upset about those things. And that and that has spread to Oklahoma and Arizona, where there's a possibility for more teacher strikes. And so it sets up this like, pretty interesting scenario, I think, if conservatives continue to gain power, where there's a greater awareness among teachers that the sacrifices that they might have made because uh, public officials told them that there wasn't money for raises or um, 
or not passing along more of your benefits costs because of the Great Recession that hammered state revenues. That environment's not really there anymore, but there's still an appetite among Republicans to push money out of K through 12 public schools and into private schools, which would further hamstring um, Georgia's public schools, which still haven't recovered all of the funding that was lost prior to the great recession. They still haven't matched what that funding was. And so I I think that we're potentially looking at a pretty uh, toxic issue, potentially for school choice Republicans on this, that if, if they can't guarantee that, the money that they want to come out of public schools doesn't significantly harm the students and the teachers that are left in those public schools. They may actually run into a lot of resistance from teachers and educators um, and and other people in the education system that have uh, grown increasingly fed up with uh, Republican led governments that are cutting taxes for corporations and wealthy people and not investing in schools. Um, We've definitely seen that anger bubble up in other places. and, And I think it's something to look for in Georgia. Yeah, I I agree, especially because there have been a lot of promises made to the teachers in Georgia and not a lot of follow through on on those promises. And so I think on that front, uh, the environment is ripe for some, yeah, something to happen, especially depending on how the governor's race goes uh, and what the reaction to that wing is. Because and as we've discussed uh, before, there's been a lot of... Uh, movement on education policies uh by this you know by nathan deal and not a lot of what he promised to get done got done and so you know with the qbe formula and so many other things it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how that turns out well and it's uh pretty uh, famous Georgia folklore now that it was teachers that helped do in the last Democratic governor, Roy Barnes, when he crossed them uh, during his reelection bid. And when you look at particularly at somebody like Michael Williams, who's always or who's already led a protest to have a teacher fired at a school in Cherokee County early in his campaign, to imagine that uh, him or or another Republican might not say something stupid about uh, teachers that are not happy about this situation, particularly if he's doing that from the governor's mansion. Um, I think you can see a lot of reasons why uh, this is potentially not a productive relationship, um, depending on who ultimately wins the governor's race. Uh, the The biggest education association in Georgia endorsed Stacey Abrams this week for governor. Um, but Stacey Evans also has an endorsement from an education group too. So, uh, clearly the educators already, uh, don't have a lot of patience for Republicans, at least, um, at an association level. Um, so the other bill that I included in kind of our list of bad bills is Senate bill 457. Um, this is a bill that, uh, increases the number of drills on school safety that schools have to do. Now, obviously, that's not a bad thing. We we want our schools to be prepared uh, for the worst that can happen. Um, but I saw just anecdotally a, a tweet on Twitter the other day of somebody whose child was uh, super upset when they came home from school because uh, their school had done an active shooter drill. And they, you know, this young child was coming to the realization that their school was a place that they could get killed. And obviously, we've seen um, the number of school shootings that have happened across the US that 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 is a reality for students now. And so, um, you know, I just thought that, obviously, these are things that we should be doing. But 
I don't think that there's a lot of people that are sort of stopping to think for a minute about what bringing up kids in an environment in an environment where they think that they could get killed at their school, um, what that does to kids and, and the cost that they're actually paying um, because we can't address bigger issues like guns. And, and this is what we have to resort to. Yeah. I'm, I don't even know where to start with this. Cause we, you know, we we've hit this when we talked about the parkland shooting. And I think at, at this point it, it's, it's better than completely ignoring it to try to think of ways to minimize damage if an incident like that did happen at Georgia school. But I'm hoping that, uh, with the energy that we're seeing from young people about school shootings and just gun violence in general, that we're going to come up with a much better solution in the near term on this stuff. And if, uh, the folks in power aren't willing to do that, then we'll run people against them until they are. All right. Well, let's dive into to the ugly bills. Um, these are ones that are particularly bad, uh, even worse than bad. The, the first of these is Senate Bill 452. Uh, this is a bill that did pass the Senate. It's an immigration bill that requires local police to notify prosecutors when they learn um, that suspects are in the country illegally. It also requires courts sentencing suspects to determine whether or not they're here without permission and to report that information to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And it allows local jails uh, to notify uh, ICE, Immigrations and Custom Enforcement, before unauthorized immigrants are released from custody. Um, but broadly, what this bill does is it forces local governments to better coordinate with the federal government um, to ensure that immigration laws are enforced. Uh, but a byproduct of that is that it creates more distrust in immigrant communities for law enforcement, for uh, even basic services that local governments provide or that you interact with government with, things like food stamps and Medicaid. Um, for families of people with mixed status to where some, some people in the family are undocumented and some people are U S citizens because they were born here. And maybe others have uh, legal permanent resident status because they, um, they got through the immigration system successfully. Um, that's the situation where some of these government services that are not available to undocumented immigrants that you're, you're potentially hurting their family by, um, dissuading the people who are eligible for these services from applying for them or interacting with governments in any way, because they uh, might open up people in their household to being at risk of deportation. This is also a big issue uh, for local crime because uh, people who are undocumented immigrants, but who also have crimes committed against them, they have a lot of incentive not to go to the police to not cooperate with them because any interaction with you know, a police officer or somebody at a court um, could result in their deportation, even though the reason for that interaction is because somebody had a crime committed against them. Um, so it, to me, it's clearly a demonstration of Georgia officials not taking the immigration problem seriously and not thinking compassionately about the people that they're impacting, um, but instead just throwing a lot of red meat to their base to prove who can be the most punitive to immigrants. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the other element of this, too, is just completely eliminating local control of the issue and, you know, letting communities find the best way to police themselves and to encourage trust and cooperation between communities and the police. And so on that front, I think that's where the most problem is, because, you know, of course, you know, you want people to follow the law and be uh, here legally, but it's it's inevitable that there's going to be some people here illegally and we don't need to treat that as something that is worth all other considerations of like finding every single last illegal immigrant in the country and getting them out and i don't think that's the policy that anybody would want because of the consequences that we you know talked about that could have and the consequences of people not trusting the police and so you know if their house gets broken into they don't report it because they don't want the uh you know chance of themselves or someone in their family getting deported and that's just not a sane policy structure for any any place and so i'm hoping that uh this ugly bill does not make it all the way through yeah past the senate i i haven't seen much about its prospects in the house but um it it, it is it has the potential to join a bunch of other bad immigration ideas coming from Republicans these days. Brian Kemp, one of the candidates for governor, he came out this week with an ad um, talking about how punitive he would be to undocumented immigrants and saying that he would create a registry of undocumented immigrants um, and ensure their immediate deportation by requiring uh, local law enforcement to to better coordinate with um, immigrations and custom enforcement to um, ensure that if they have somebody undocumented in their uh, custody, that they um, hold them until ICE can come get them. And, um, you know, it can't basically uh, threw out some red meat to his base to just prove how terrible he was going to be to uh, people that live in our community. Um, another one of the the bills that's good in its nature but bad in its opposition is the uh, Hidden Predator Act of 2018. This is House Bill 605. Um, this is a bill that made it out of the House unanimously on crossover day. 170 to zero was the vote. Um, so not not only uh, did it pass unanimously, but nearly everybody voted for it. This is a bill that basically opens up more opportunities for people who are victims of child sexual abuse to find some sort of legal avenue to justice long after the crime has been committed. Um, This is sort of a second iteration of a bill that has been discussed at the legislature since 2015 that's meant to open up more liability for entities that that have covered up for sexual abuse of children in their care. Um, Basically, the idea is that people up to 38 years old would be allowed to sue uh, perpetrators and entities like private schools, youth organizations, and churches uh, for sexual abuse committed against them. And it would expand the discovery period from two to four years and open up a one-year window for uh, people of any age to sue both alleged perpetrators and organizations that are accused of shielding them. Um, the thing that is so terribly ugly about this bill, though, is that uh, groups like the Boy Scouts of America, the Catholic Conference, and um, the insurance industry and the Georgia Cam- Chamber of Commerce are all working to block some or all of this bill. 
And so it's clear that there are some entities in Georgia, uh, maybe for reasons that they have something to hide, um, are standing in the way of justice for uh children who were sexually abused and who are trying to find justice for a crime committed against them later in life. I have not read this legislation, so I'm not going to like sign off on it uh, wholesale. Uh, and my hometown rep of Jason Spencer is the one supporting this. But the fact that it did pass unanimously is probably a good sign about the contents of it. And it's pretty apparent that a lot of these issues of childhood abuse, especially when it's, um, you know, by organizations that the uh, child was involved with, like they come out much, much later in life. And it's not something that a even, you know, 22, 23, 25 year old feels comfortable pursuing and understanding and having an idea of how to handle it. And it's something that a lot of people come to terms with and uh, seek justice at a much later date. And so I think, coming up with a way for people to do that is a good thing. And I also agree with the reason why you put this on the ugly list because like it's understandable that organizations don't want to be held liable for, you know, the actions of their employees. No business wants to have to pay for that. But at the end of the day, they are the ones responsible for hiring and paying these people and, they are the only ones that are in a position to hold them accountable and, you know, before they do something wrong and vet them and make sure that they aren't people who uh, will abuse their positions of power. And so on that front, they absolutely should be held liable. And I think their opposition to this legislation should not be taking as taking us you know seriously yeah i mean some of the context for this is that there's uh currently ongoing ongoing um litigation around a case involving the boy scouts of america and an allegation that they kept lists of known child predators that um were involved with the boy scouts and um, it's not clear that they, you know, kept this list and and then fired all these people. Uh, but what is what does seem to be clear, according to the lawsuit, is that this was a list that was kept for decades and was not shared publicly. And so, even if the Boy Scouts organization, um, you know, removed these people who were abusing children from overseeing children, and and tried to stop that from happening, they did not involve. Uh, law enforcement and they did not at least it appears they did not give uh, victims of child sexual abuse the ability to seek justice for crimes that were committed to them and part of what they're saying now is that well if the boy scouts are responsible for paying out for cases of abuse that happened decades ago it would endanger current children being served by the boy scouts because that money would have to come from safety programs from these children or or other services that uh children who participate in the boy scouts get and so they've in their opposition to this bill they're trying to use existing uh they're trying to use children currently 
participating in Boy Scouts against children who have been sexually abused by people who were affiliated with the Boy Scouts um, to say that they shouldn't get justice because we have these other kids to currently take care of. I mean, that's the part that was so ugly to me was that they would try to pit one group of these kids against another. Yeah, and I, I think that's just unacceptable because th- it's not... There's no one else that can police this until people come forward. And so if they are aware of people who are sexually exploiting people, then like they need to make that public. They need to let law enforcement know and damn the consequences because it's just this is it's too big of a problem to just let Skaga side. And so the fact that they are opposing this bill so vigorously it shows a real, real like mislaying of their priorities. Yeah. And this is why I wanted to spend so much time on that separate, uh, outside of the state run adoption system that we talked about a few weeks ago, because this is just more examples of institutions, uh, covering for themselves and the people involved and not taking care of the people that are supposed to be in their care. And this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, the government needs to be on the lookout for. One final bill that I thought was pretty ugly uh, was House Bill 81. This bill relates to health insurance and it allows public hospitals to seize their patient state income tax refunds for unpaid debt. Um, Basically, because the state did not expand its Medicaid program, a lot of rural hospitals are having pretty significant financial trouble. We talked about this pretty Uh, at length before. And so one of the ideas that's popped up in sort of the bucket of really bad ideas about how to help these hospitals is to allow public hospitals to uh, make a claim on a low income person's tax return, and to take the money in that tax return, and uh, cover the unpaid healthcare costs uh, for people. And the, the reason it went from the bad to ugly list actually owes completely to Jimmy Lewis. He's the CEO of hometown health that represents rural hospitals. And he said, uh, in a quote to AJC, he said that clearly these hospitals are suffering because there's a substantial population that have come to realize that they will always get treated at the hospital and decided in the shortage of caregivers, their source of care is going to be in the is going to be the emergency room and then they get their income tax refund and use it to buy candy and beer. So he throws low income people who don't have health insurance, who can't pay for their health care under the bus. Um, and in the process is, uh, championing an idea that would allow people's tax refunds to just be taken from them. Uh, this is, uh, even way worse than the, the other bad ideas that we've used to try to support rural hospitals. You know, we're a broken record on this, but this is just another sign that they they will find every way to try to help the rural hospitals except the one that would actually help them, which is expanding Medicaid. And the fact that it they're coming up with these really backward schemes to help these these hospitals get more money. I'm just I'm just so done dealing with these pieces of legislation because there there's a very simple solution that is just politically unpopular with the legislators and not with Georgians in general. And I just wish that we wouldn't keep doing these things. 
The the other thing that really bugs me about this bill is that um, this is uh, the brainchild of a of a guy who um, is involved with the hospital system in rural Georgia, and he admits that he doesn't know if this is going to be effective or how much it's going to help, if at all. And so he's inserting an idea through uh, Tom McCall, a Republican from Alberton. Um, he's inserting an idea into this debate that uh, could potentially be really destabilizing to low income people who rely on their tax refund to do things like pay for their basic necessities, uh, pay off debt, um, or make savings for a bigger purchase that would help ease their path to the middle class. Um, he's, you know, potentially putting these people into an administrative situation with a hospital where the hospital is not required to be fully transparent about all of the options that are available to people to help them uh, pay back their debt. Uh, For instance, hospitals tend to use uh, lower like discounts for people with lower incomes to try to recoup at least some of the value of the services that they provided. But this bill doesn't require hospitals to notify uh, the people whose tax return tax refunds are being taken. Um, It does not require them to notify that there are discount plans available. And um, it seems to me to be potentially a violation of people's due process uh, because um, the timeline for which people have to appeal uh, their tax refund being taken for some of these, um, hospital charges is not very long, uh, but figuring out the billing process and, and deciding whether or not the hospital, um, is actually accurately providing an assessment of, of the unpaid debt that somebody owes, um, that may take longer than the window that people have to appeal this uh, piece of legislation. So, um, this is another one that's pretty ugly and it, it clearly shows again, the priorities of Republicans that refuse Medicaid expansion consistently, um, this is yet another year where that issue is not going to be seriously considered. And instead they oppose and instead they adopt a lot of really bad ideas that are band-aids at best and um, don't really pay any attention to the needs of low-income people without insurance um, that really need access to health care across rural Georgia. Um, but that's really the collection of bills that that stood out to us. Um, so we are Coming up on uh, the final stretch of the legislative session, um, Sine Die is coming up soon, right, Luke? Didn't we say uh, it was? Yeah, Sine Die is on March 29th. So we have three full weeks of session left, basically. So yeah, we're coming down to the end here. Uh, hopefully, uh, legislators will continue ad- to adopt some of these good things and the uh, opposite side of the legislature on some of these bad bills. Maybe the opposite side of the legislature can kill some of these bad ideas. But with that, let's move on to a quick discussion on qualifying. So this is qualifying week at the legislature. Um, and a lot of people who have already said that they're running are now officially throwing their hat in. Uh, their name is on the paperwork. The T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and they are ready to go um, as we sprint. Really, we're not that far from uh, the first primaries in Georgia. Um, Luke, were there any surprises from you out of qualifying so far? I wouldn't say that there's been any surprises. There have been a lot of interesting things. Uh, I think the most interesting thing is that both uh, Jonathan Wallace and Deborah Gonzalez have... uh, 
are facing competitors that they previously defeated. Houston Gaines has already qualified against Deborah and Steven Strickling, who was one of uh, the three Republicans running against him, uh, has qualified. I'm kind of surprised now the other ones did as well, but Strickland is the one that got the most uh, percentage of the vote, I believe, against Wallace, so it sort of makes sense that he's the one that has qualified against him. And then uh, Valerie Clark, who Sam Park defeated back in 2016, also qualified against him. And so there's just a lot of uh, people trying to take a second bite at the apple uh, for these races, so I thought that was pretty interesting and just browsing through i noticed that uh the same thing has happened for several of the uh primaries both on the republican and democratic side there's some folks that um have uh qualified again actually i lied to you guys i am so sorry i lied there was a big surprise which was that john barge is running for school superintendent again which i thought is just oh i forgot about that so I forgot about that surprise. Yeah. <laughs> actually. And and so, yeah, like that's actually kind of like weird because uh, uh, for those of you who uh, don't remember, John Barge was the state school superintendent and then he ran against Nathan Deal in 2014 in the Republican primary and obviously was unsuccessful. Uh, so now he is trying to get back his uh, his old position. And so uh, that that was uh, pretty surprising to me. I didn't, I didn't see that one coming and didn't really hear anything about it uh, before it happened. Um, the other thing I'd say is it's pretty interesting that almost all of the Republican-held congressional seats that have a Democrat running against them have a contested primary. So that's a pretty interesting as well. Uh, lots, of, lots of people are uh, running. And more, uh, more on the good news side, even if you're a Republican, you, you should love competition. And on that front, uh, the Democrats have qualified... Uh, quite a few people and uh, from what I hear they very well might get up to 120 before the the week is out but that is speculation at this point they they've almost um, topped 100 state house candidates so that's that's much much better than last cycle when we if we won every race that we had contested we still would have taken the state house so we have officially passed that bar we have passed the Austin Wagner test yes so if you're out there, Austin. He'll be, yeah, he'll he'll be happy to to see all those Democrats qualifying for qualifying for office. I'm sure. Um, yeah, it is interesting the the primaries that are going to happen between Democrats in the congressional races. Um, it this isn't necessarily relevant to Georgia, but there there is tons of energy on the Democratic side right now. Um, I'm sure that you've heard that from basically everybody that's talked about politics. Um, but in one of the scenarios where Republicans in Washington actually keep the House of Representatives, um, one of the scenarios in which that could play out is that some of the districts that should get picked up by Republic that should get picked up by Democrats in California uh, may ultimately end up turning into final congressional contest between two Republicans instead of a Republican and a Democrat because of the jungle primary system they have over there. Um, and, and you definitely see, while we don't have that problem that they have in California, um, you definitely see the energy on the democratic side here in Georgia too, with these congressional primaries. I think the thing that I saw that was kind of surprising is that Lucy McBath, she's a, um, advocate around guns um, who I think became decently well known after I believe her son was killed in a in a shooting incident. Um, 
she was considering running for state house and then she ultimately jumped into the Georgia six race against Karen Handel and is going to jump into that democratic primary. Um, and I don't, I don't know Lucy McBath and, and I, I don't know much about her story. And obviously I think she is motivated pretty significantly by events in her personal life to jump into politics and, um, to try to do something about guns, particularly in the wake of Parkland. Um, but I am a little disappointed that, um, she opted to run for Congress instead of for a state house seat. Um, and this may be what's best for her. I, I don't know her, so I'm not sure. But I, I think some of this is um, some frustration about the very minimal prospects of doing anything on guns in the state legislature. Um, and so my hope for candidates out there who are looking at races to run, looking to throw their hat into something, um, to to not pass up on the state legislature because you think you can't do enough to make a difference. Um, the the enthusiasm and energy among Democrats, even if it doesn't flip either the house or Senate in Georgia, it may change the numbers really significantly after the midterm elections in November. And that really does recreate the possibilities of what is feasible in the legislature because both Republicans don't have the ability to lose votes among their own caucus and still get things done. And um, Democrats can use more leverage to, uh, allow their votes to be offered up on measures that, for instance, moderate Republicans might also support, or business-minded Republicans might also support, where Democrats can carry more of those votes. Um, and so I would encourage people to not overlook the state house and state Senate. Um, I've been pestering John Ossoff about this on Twitter, <laughs> um, because there were all these rumors about would he or won't he uh, go back to the well against Karen Handel. And Which I as of the him, moment, he has not. Yeah, he's not. Um but, I think he endorsed someone in that race, so he's probably not not running again. Yeah, no, he I, he confirmed that he's not running again. Um, and I was egging him on on Twitter to run for state house or state senate. So if you want to run for something, get out there and throw your hat in for state house or state senate. You can make a difference, um, and it's it's really not that hard. It's I think personally, it's probably easier to win a state house seat than it is to win a seat in Congress. Well, it is. I mean, the other thing is too is like you know. There are so many of these congressional races that have like three or four Democrats running and it's just it's it's not a defeat to decide to run for a lower office because I was actually um, pretty pleasantly surprised that I saw someone I can't remember who it was off the top of my head but like I saw someone who actually ran for District 6 that is now running for a state house seat and I was just like yes that's exactly what you're supposed to do um, because and I think this is the most important thing is not just on guns but like on anything um, things are starting to move our way on a lot of issues and if we're able to pick up state house seats and you approach it reasonably and you approach it treating the other side like they're people and human beings then there'll be a lot of opportunities to get this stuff done where in washington a lot of times stuff doesn't happen because of the political brinkmanship and you know games that get played up in dc and like just the georgia general assembly as we kind of discussed today going through the bills like they're just not like that like that hasn't that bug hasn't bit them purely and sure there are times where that happens where people make really party line votes that are you know uh not not in the best interest of the state but it's 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 much rarer than 
um, than it is in DC. And so, you know, there's a lot of opportunity if you sincerely care about an issue and you push it hard and it's not something that's like blatantly democratic or blatantly Republican that you can get folks on the other side to go along with it. So on that front, I think Congress is a trash heap. So (laughs) run for the General Assembly. It's much better. Yeah, I I might regret this if I ever have to run for Congress one day, but um, I... If you have to, if someone forces you to run. Well, I would not want to work in the House of Representatives in Congress. It just sounds terrible from from people I know and from the things that they are discussing and debating all the time and in the fact that really nothing gets done. Cal um, Hayes 2020, I don't want to do it. Yeah, I don't want to do it, but if you make me, I will. Uh, but all right, I think we will leave that there for the week. Um, but we are coming up on the end of the legislative session. And then if you've been missing any of our discussions of national politics, we'll, uh, in the next episode, we're planning to take a look back at some of the crazy stuff going on in Washington. Uh, Trump is starting a trade war. Hopefully he's not starting a real war. Um, and, uh, Despite the fact that Trump says everyone wants to come work at the White House, uh, it is becoming increasingly clear that nobody wants to work at the White House. Um, So we're going to have more on the craziness in Washington, uh, the gubernatorial race, and the end of the legislative session coming up next week. Uh, But for now, we will let you guys get out of here, and we will talk to you all next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.